from evil. We know bad things happen. And maybe it's not right to call everything that is negative that happens to us evil. We know that, that life can be hard. We know that pain and suffering and trials, some of the times in which we experience that, we say it's because of the evil. We know that those can hurt so bad. But we also know that each and every one of them can produce growth, can produce blessings in our lives, even though we can't see how in the world it would ever happen. And we know it can ultimately lead us to a closer walk with Christ our Lord. When things are on fire, our prayer, as we heard sung for us at the nine o'clock service, let beauty come out of the ashes. And indeed, beauty can rise. And so before we really dig into our question for today, I have two scripture lessons for us. And the first is from a, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church in Rome. And it kind of talks about the ways in which some things are hard, even within creation. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And then a second quick little text, something we need to be reminded of all the time. Jesus is attributed to have been uh, speaking these words in the Sermon on the Mount, speaking of God, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And so we're in this sermon series around difficult questions, questions that have been asked to me uh, time and time again over the course of my ministry. We began with that question, does God make mistakes? Does God have regrets? Last week, we explored how in the world we can find out what God's will is for our lives so that we might experience the peace that surpasses all understanding in living it out. But today, on this World Communion Sunday... We're going to look at what is maybe the most frequently asked question, although it's asked to me, and, and maybe you've had conversations. It, the question comes in a lot of different forms. How can I believe in a good God in an evil world? But maybe it's, it's best simply put, why do bad things happen to good people? We ask the question, how can we make sense of where God fits in regarding suffering? Think about it. Think about how many things that cause pain and suffering, these things that happen that we sometimes say that was an act of God. Does the act of God intend for pain and suffering, for anguish, for loss? Is it an act of God to perpetrate destructive acts? How can we believe in a God that is both sovereign and good? And, and a question that came up here this week is, 
You know, if God is concerned for the least of these, if God draws near to the crushed, the broken spirit, those who are sick, where has God been during this COVID pandemic? People ask those kinds of questions. Where was God when the fires began in California that are now taking acre after acre after acre? Why wouldn't God put an end to that? Why in the world would God give human beings the capacity to hate, to backstab, to lie, to be blinded by greed? Oh, if only we could sit down face to face with God and and really hash this all out. That sentiment is as old as humanity. There's just a fantastic story, troubling, yes, but the story in the Bible about Job who, who lost everything, and Job is filled with questions. And this is what Job says in chapter 23, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his dwelling. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. That's big talk for a guy who's not yet face to face with the creator of everything that was, but wouldn't we like to give God a peace of our mind? Friends, I think God would much prefer us to stand outside and shake our fist up in heaven and continue to be in dialogue than to simply check out or to tune out. And so, full disclosure, this, this question is enormous. This question is huge. And to walk with this question, to wrestle with questions like this requires great humility. And I want you to know I approach this question with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. I don't ever do this, but I want to give you the sources that I used so that if you want to go back this week and hear what they were, if you want me to send you a copy of of my sources, that you can wrestle further with these kinds of topics, Emerson, uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick in a sermon says, how to believe in a good God in a world like this, and also in a writing, Dear Mr. Brown, Letters to a Person Perplexed About Religion, chapter 7 that I read, How to Explain the World's Evil. John Wesley had a sermon on evil angels. He attributed some of these things that are happening in nature, some of these things that happen around us to the forces of evil, evil angels. That makes some of us very, very nervous. Dr. King's sermon, Our God is Able. The great E. Stanley Jones, what a wonderful missionary, his work growing spiritually. Of course, Harold Kushner's Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And a sermon by a man named John Leper, When Crisis Comes Home. And see us in this sermon series, Answering Difficult Questions, we come here for answers, and yet the answers might still seem incomplete. When I'm about to unpack for you, it's my prayer that it will raise up in you more questions, that you will walk this week with your understanding. I hope there's something I say that you so disagree with that you have to hash it out with yourself, or better yet, hash it out in a small group of people talking about the faith implications of it. These questions, what, who, how, but we know that it is living the questions that makes our Christianity relevant in any age. For Christianity to be relevant, it needs to wrestle with questions. And so let's think about our journey. We come to church as little children and 
in normal days, we come forward and the children do something cute that the adults in the, in, the, in the congregation just love to see. And then they go storming off to Sunday school where they hear the stories of the Bible, where they start to learn the tenets of faith. They come to vacation Bible school and these stories come alive through song and dance and through ornamentation. And, and these children are given a Bible, but they're also given a faith. Any church that's not actively trying to do that is failing as a church of Jesus Christ. But then something happens. We don't stay children, do we? We grow up, we, we get into late childhood, we get into adolescence, and we start to look at everything that we have been told very, very critically. And that's a good thing. But this is a time in the lives of many where people start to reject Christianity simply because there are parts of faith that are really hard. But the goal of faith development is that we would move to the next stage in faith always rather than rejecting it. The goal of, of, of spiritual formation and faith development is to ask questions, to ask the questions we have about our faith, to wrestle with them, and hopefully to come out on the other side transformed. Yes, we may limp after wrestling just as Jacob did, but transform new people. Thinkers, both religious thinkers and otherwise, have been wrestling with these kinds of questions forever. More than 2,500 years ago, uh, Epicurus, a philosopher, said this, questioning God, if God is both willing and able, which is alone suitable to God, from what then are the sources of evil? And why does God not remove them? And Epicurus came to the conclusion that I hope none of us would come to. He concluded that God has no interest in humans. And I reject that. The Bible lets us know that we are created in the image of God, male and female, black and white. You can't tell me God has no interest in humans. But one of the things that we notice with this humanity, living out our life, we, we notice that, that the universe itself kind of points to some kind of a dualism, good and evil, happiness and pain, life and death, and that causes tension or struggle. All of the great religions in the world have wrestled with this. Hinduism, illusion and reality. Buddhism, to exist itself is evil. To escape it is the ultimate goal, to get to nirvana. Zoroastrianism, light and darkness. Platoism, spirit and matter, and within our own heritage, our Judeo-Christian heritage, God and Satan. God and Satan. And so in Emerson's sermon, uh, How to Believe in a Good God in a World Like This, he lets us know that we can believe in a good God because God has created a good, law-abiding universe. And in this law-abiding universe, Fosdick would suggest that all suffering, all pain, all evil is a result of one of four things. One of four things. A law-abiding nature of the universe, the progressive nature of human life, the human freedom of choice, and finally, the intermeshed relationship of human life. Now, number three and four, we know that, right? That God gave us this ability to think and to make decisions, which means I can make a decision that may harm you completely, and, and I may make the decision that I don't even care that I hurt you, 
And what makes that hard is because our lives are intermeshed. They are intermingled. Every single person in this room, I guarantee you, has been hurt by somebody else and, yes, has hurt somebody else by an action or an inaction or by a decision. But it's these first two that that I really want to wrestle with this day, this natural law where we see so many things, we say, what's up with that? How could a good God allow that to happen? And then finally, the fact that who we are as human beings, that we have this, this progressive nature, we are called to always be growing, to evolve in our minds, in our souls. And so this, this natural law, the, the law-abiding nature, for some is very offensive. They ask, you know, are crimes of humanity different than the crimes of the creator? Doesn't, doesn't nature perpetrate violence against humanity that causes pain and suffering and evil? Think about it. It's a human choice if I'm going to set something on fire. And yet in nature, every day, lightning strikes, set something ablaze. When it comes to murder, a human being, whether it's through passion or rage or mental illness, makes the decision to, to, to murder somebody. And yet every day, there is some act of nature that takes somebody's life. Somebody can poison someone or something else, and yet in our creation, there are cobras and vipers. This led one person to say, the creator habitually does on a vast scale things for which men are sent to prison or executed. John Stuart Mill said, in sober truth, nearly all the things for which men are hanged or imprisoned for doing to one another are nature's everyday performances. And so we try and wrestle with that. Now, our very traditional Christian brothers and sisters point all the way back to the Garden of Eden where there was the fall. Adam and Eve fell. They, they chose poorly, and all of creation was changed. Creation was, was broken. Creation itself was going to suffer, and because of that, evil exists. And that, that's what helps some people really make sense of this. But we know the Greek word for evil is kakos, which means a lack of something or less than whole. There is another way to see this natural law, to see natural either evil. Rather than the world was created perfect and was made imperfect after the fall, while God declared all creation good, humanity and creation were always imperfect as only God can be perfect. Which is why we always say we're on the road to perfection, but are we really striving for it? Is the earth striving for perfection? What's our role in that? Because humanity is imperfect, there is a lack of wholeness. Thus, kakos, translated as evil. That's not to say that creation is not good, but it means it is not yet whole. As we heard, it, it, it yearns to be, it groans to be made whole. But friends, this is actually more complicated than we could ever imagine we think we could do a better job if we were God just for one day, but in reality, we have no idea how hard it would be to manage this. We have no idea. We say that we would eliminate earthquakes, that we would eliminate tornadoes. We forget, though, that to eliminate those things, we would also have to eliminate tectonic plates and thunderstorm production. And friends, we know that storm production, if we were to eliminate it, if we were omnipotent and just did away with it, that there would be deadly consequences. 
Nothing would grow. There would, there would be no food. Part of the beauty and the complexity of God's creation includes natural law and the evolutionary nature of creation. Natural law lets us know that if an object is released from a height, what's going to happen? It's going to fall. And why is that? Because gravity is undefeated. Whether it's an apple that hits Newton on the head or a feather or a meteorite crashing through our atmosphere. Would we really want to live in a world where the things that happen each and every day in nature suddenly could not be counted on? We're suddenly inconsistent. Could we, could we even wrap our mind around that? Yes, nature brings with it some real cruelty. And yet it is a gift to us that we are called to be stewards of. But the second thing that really brings so much harm that, that leads people to believe that there is evil that is a real thing in, in our world is this concept that we are always trying to learn, that we are always moving forward, that God is pulling us forward, and yet we're never completely there. You see, God has equipped us with everything to, so we can understand even more uh, in depth the creation that's before us and the blessings that it can be. And yet sometimes we take what is intended to be a blessing and we mess it all up. We mess it all up. We've discovered an atom. And this atom has led to uses of nuclear technology that have been used in tests to find out whether or not a body has cancer. And if so, how much and where We've also abused that technology with nuclear warheads and nuclear weapons, atomic bombs. We no longer have to light candles or a fire to keep warm or to see on a cold winter night. No, we have all of this energy, all of these resources, and yet what do we do? We pollute. We pollute. We have a shortage of resources because of the way in which we have failed as stewards. There are consequences for our actions individually, but yes, collectively. We do things that, that keep us from understanding, that keep us from, from a full uh, appreciation of, of creation the way God intends it to ultimately be. This progression in human life is crucial and we know that as we progress through life, it brings with it, yes, pain and suffering, but it also brings with it blessings and pleasures that are meant to be shared and cherished. One area where this applies is in human growth and development. Think about it when we're children. Consider the pain of growing up. How many times do we fall and, and skin our knee when, as we transition from crawling to walking to riding bikes to running, life can be a stern teacher as we struggle with the mastery and, and skills and understanding. And sometimes learning is out and out painful. But friends, the failure to learn, I promise you, will be even more painful and disastrous. God created an unfinished universe and allows humans the opportunity to participate with God in the improvement, the completion of the world, human growth and development and the progress of mankind do not proceed along a direct path of incline. We know all too well that no, rather there are setbacks, there are hindrances, and these setbacks and these hindrances oftentimes cause suffering. On the other hand, however, 
It is the nature of humanity to gain pleasure and satisfaction from bringing progress to our unfinished world. I really believe our prayer should be, thank you, Lord, for the beauty you intend. Now strengthen us and guide us that we may live it into reality, collectively, all around the world, male and female, black and white. And yet this natural law and the fact that we are in this process of evolving to who God ultimately wants us to be is slow. We, we say, God, where are you? God, where are you? And so sometimes people throw a cliche at us. They say in times of, of, of evil, in times of suffering, in times of trial, in times of disaster, it is God who is the first to weep. Do we believe that? William Sloan Coffin was a, a radical. He was a reformer. He was a professor. He was a powerful preacher who, who preached at Riverside Church in Manhattan. And many of you know his story. He, he lost a son whose car went into the water and he drowned because of that situation. And he was reflecting back on, on the people who had come by to, you know, with best intentions, of course. And he said he was never once consoled by one of the casseroles that was brought. He was never once consoled with the words that people were trying to say, hoping it would be the right words. He was certainly not consoled when someone looked him in the eye and said, it was the will of God, an act of God. And so Sloan, with his beautiful theological mind, started to reflect on what that really meant. What does it mean, the will of God? And so in regards to the will of God, Sloan Coffin says, never do, we know, never do we know enough to say it was the will of God. So listen to his words. He said, my own consolation lies in knowing that it was not the will of God that Alex die, that when the waves closed over the sinking car, God's heart was the first of all of our hearts to break. Heartbreak, he writes, is a part of who God is and who God has been throughout all human history. God's heart breaks with yours. The pain is deep, but God is good, and God is with you in your grief. Why do bad things happen to good people? Harold Kushner says, you know, laws of nature and simple bad luck could be the culprits. There aren't always reasons why bad things happen, but in times of trouble, God does not explain. God comforts. And so I'm going to leave you with some food for thought, something I hope you will wrestle with. If you were God for a day, would you really do it differently? Would you really do it differently? What would you remove? Would you remove natural law or evolutionary nature, moral choice? Would you remove the intermeshed nature of human relationships and life? No, friends. As we say when we gather uh, time and time again, Scripture promises us that God is good, and God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Amen.